The great American novelist Mark Twain said, one out of, the statistics are staggering, one out of every one person dies. One out of every one person dies. This is something that we don't often like to think about, but the reality is, indeed, the statistics are staggering. One out of every one person dies. And so we need to think about questions of life and death. We need to think about our own mortality. As one year passes to the next, it's good to consider the bigger picture. It's good to zoom out, as it were, and to look at our lives uh, in a broader perspective. Psalm 90 helps us do that. Psalm 90 is aimed at helping us put our lives into proper perspective. It's a prayer. You notice that the title, which I really should have read, this is part of the scripture. The title is A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Moses is petitioning God, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is verse 12. It's Moses' petition that God would help us put our lives into perspective. And so obviously the main idea here in this psalm, it's recorded for us to help us do just that, to help us put our lives into perspective. The psalm begins by giving us a reminder of the eternality of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. In verse 1, the language that's used is of language of endless succession. All generations. One generation rises and falls, and another generation rises and falls, and another generation rises and falls, and on and on and on and on. And the Lord remains the dwelling place of His people. This is one way of speaking about God's eternality. In verse 2, different language is used. The language of everlastingness. Everlasting means without beginning and without end. It's language of atemporality. It's not endless succession, but transcending succession. From everlasting to everlasting is a unfathomable statement, frankly. What does it mean from everlasting to everlasting? There can't be one everlasting prior to another everlasting, strictly speaking. And so this is language of hyperbole, from everlasting to everlasting, outside of time, above time, through the rise and the fall of every generation. Oh Lord, You are the dwelling place of your people. O Lord, you continue 
as it were. This is what the psalmist reminds us of. Moses, in this case, reminds us of God's eternality. Not only is there language here that points us in that direction, the language of never-ending sequence, as in all generations, or the language of atemporality in terms of everlastingness, but also there's a point of reference given us here. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The mountains. In the Bible, the mountains often represent the greatest permanence that this created order knows. For example, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 6 speaks of the relative permanence of mountains. It says, Yahweh stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. The language used of the mountains there in that section is eternal mountains and everlasting hills. And again, obviously that is hyperbole because... Even in that passage, we see that the eternal mountains are scattered and the everlasting hills sink low, which shows that they are actually not, strictly speaking, eternal and everlasting. But they're called eternal mountains and everlasting hills. And there's similar language throughout Scripture referring to mountains because to us, mountains are some of the most permanent objects that we can conceive of, some of the most stable and steady things that we can conceive of. We see the sea move and churn and change, and we see tempests flare up and die down, but the mountains stay static and seemingly unchanging. I don't know if you've ever stood at the foot of a mountain I've stood at the foot of the Rocky Mountains in Western Canada and looked up and it is breathtaking. The sheer immensity of the mountains is is breathtaking. I can understand from my experience with the Rocky Mountains why the mountains are used in Scripture to refer to permanence, immovability, changelessness we know strictly speaking none of these things are actually technically true of mountains but they're a good point of reference as compared with say the sea for example or the fickleness of the human heart or animals which live and die in relatively quick uh, uh, relatively quickly in comparison to the erosion of mountains and so on and so forth Mountains seem to us to be immovable, permanent, unchangeable. And yet the language here is, before the mountains were brought forth, you are God. And so the first thing that the psalmist does here is he gives us a grand picture 
of God's permanence, of God's eternality, that He is the dwelling place of fathers and grandfathers, and He shall be the dwelling place of sons and grandsons. Throughout all generations, He is God. From everlasting to everlasting, without beginning and without end, He is God. He is above even the mountains in terms of permanence and uh, enduringness and stability and unchangeableness. He is immutable, eternal, infinite in His duration and in His essence. This is the portrait that Moses paints for us of God as he begins this psalm, this prayer. In contrast, Moses speaks to the temporality of man. He gives us metaphors for man's life. And when he says man... He means humankind. He's using man to speak of men and women and boys and girls. The first metaphor he gives us, well, strictly speaking, it's not even a metaphor. You return man to dust, Psalm 90 and verse 3 says, and say, return, O children of man. In the beginning, man was formed from the dust of the ground. And God cursed fallen man, saying, You shall return to the dust, having sinned. This is temporality. In contrast to God being from everlasting to everlasting and existing and remaining and enduring throughout all generations, we are formed from the dust, and to dust we return. And then Moses gives us a metaphor in verse 4. He says, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. And of course, he's referring to the lifespan of man. He's not changing his subject matter as he moves from verse 3 to verse 4. He's talking about the temporality of of man and contrasting God's eternality with man's temporality. To us, a thousand years seems like such a long time. But to God, a thousand years in His sight are but as yesterday when it is past. We can look back even at 2017 and say, where has the time gone? We feel like Even a year when it is past is just quick, nothing. How much less a yesterday? Have you ever had that feeling toward the end of the day where you just feel like, where did the time go? I meant to do so many things, but where did the time go? Moses is saying that it's as if God feels that way about a thousand years. Where has the time gone since the year 1017? Wow, it just disappeared. 
before I knew it, it was over. This is the contrast here. Compared to God's eternality, our temporality is in stark contrast. A watch in the night. Apparently the ancient Jews divided the night watch into three parts, four hours each. And then apparently the Romans divided the night watch into four watches of three hours each. But a watch in the night is like three, four hours. Where did it go? Where did it go? The watch in the night passed. And in fact, for most of us, if not set on the city walls, we slept as all the watches of the night passed. So by the time we wake up, three or four watches of the night have gone. Where did they go? Fleeting. Moses goes on and says that the children of man are swept away, verse 5, as with a flood. We are compared to things that are swept away in a flood. A flood comes, washes things away. Where, where do you even begin to look for the things that were swept away in the flood? Perhaps a tsunami comes and goes. You don't even bother to look for the things that are gone. You never find them. They're gone. They disappeared. The children of man are like things swept away in a flood. The children of man are like a dream. This is also verse 5. A dream. You wake up in the morning. Sometimes you can remember your dream. A lot of times you can't. Or sometimes you have a vague memory. You're kind of like, I know I dreamed about something. But what was it? He's gone. He's gone. Like grass. It's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. As quickly as grass springs up and is mown down, so our lives spring up and are cut down. The ESV says fades. The King James Version says cut down. Cut down and withers. This is us. Dust. Yesterday. A watch in the night. Things swept away in a flood. A dream. Grass. In contrast to God who has been the dwelling place of His people throughout all generations. Who is surpasses the mountains in his duration and in his immovability and in his unchangeableness, in his steadfastness. In contrast to God who is from everlasting to everlasting, we are dust. We are yesterday. We are a watch in the night. We are things swept away in a flood. We are a dream. We are grass. Our temporality is... so obvious it can be quantified and measured where do you begin to quantify and measure everlasting you can't but in verse 9 we see all our days pass away under your wrath we bring our years to an end like a sigh our lives are not 
capable of being measured only in years, but even in days. Think about that. I don't, I can't do the math off the top of my head and I didn't do it in preparation. But Moses goes on to say in verse 10, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. And keep in mind, Moses himself died at 120. So he's not saying, he's not setting down a hard and fast rule that people always only live 70, 80 years. But he's making the point that we have a finite lifespan and generally people live 70 or 80 years, roughly. And you can measure that in days. You could take out your calculator on your phone right now and calculate 80 years times 365. And you would see a relatively small number of days. It seems large to us, but when you think of it like that, you think of the number of days that have occurred since that first day when God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the number of days that shall occur between now and the time when the last trumpet sounds and Christ descends from the sky with the cry of an archangel. And you then compare that number of days with your number of days. It's a relatively small number. And when you begin to think more broadly than that in terms of eternity, eternity, that number of days that will show up on your calculator is a very small number. Dust, yesterday, a watch in the night, things swept away in a flood, dream, grass. I've made the point to some of you before, I think it was in community group we were talking. Most of us will be forgotten by our grandchildren's children. Think about that. How many of you know your grandchildren's, or pardon me, your grandparents' parents? Think about that. My sons, Max and Wade, if they have children, and I'm still alive, they will likely know me. But when they, when Max's children have children, they probably won't even know who I am. When Wade's children have children, they probably won't even know who I am. Think about that. Some of us leave a bit of a stronger mark on history than others, and so we remember names beyond three generations. Or some of, our, some of us have a greater interest in historical matters, and so we search out our ancestors to find out their names and to do research about them. But for many of us, we don't even know our grandparents' parents. Which means that for many of us, our grandchildren's children, likewise, won't even know us. Dust. Yesterday. A watch in the night. Things swept away in a flood. Dreams. Grass. Oh Lord. You are the dwelling place of your people in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As for us, we are dust. 
Yesterday, a watch in the night, things swept away in a flood, dreams, grass. You see the contrast that is apparent and evident in this psalm in terms of the way that Moses speaks about God's eternality and our temporality. God's comparative bigness, as it were, and our comparative smallness, as it were. And the reasons given in this psalm for our temporality are finitude, we are finite creatures. Even the mountains were brought forth. Even the earth in its totality, the world was formed. Verse 2. How much more us as inhabitants of the world, us who are not as enduring as the mountains, how much more is it true of us that we were formed, we were brought forth, we are creatures. And therefore, as creatures, we are finite. We had a beginning date. Even the mountains, which are comparatively permanent, had a beginning date. And how much more us who are more evidently changeable and temporary and fleeting than the mountains? Do we have a beginning date and an ending date? We are temporal because we are finite. We are not God. We are God's creatures. We were brought forth. We were formed. And so by virtue of our finiteness, we are temporal and God is eternal as creator. But the psalm says more than that. Verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. We are like grass that flourishes and is renewed in the morning and in the evening is cut down and withers. Verse 7 tells us that it is God who is doing the cutting down. This psalm teaches us that our death Our our temporality is not merely by virtue of our finitude, our finiteness, but it is compounded by our sinfulness and God's just wrath against our sin. God looks at the sin of man it has just wrath against our sin. God is not God doesn't have a bad temper. God does not fly off the handle. God does not overreact. God does not judge unfairly. God does not fail to take the facts into account God created us which means we owe him obedience as creatures to our creator by virtue of the fact that he created us but moreover he wrote his law on our hearts moreover he gave Adam a specific instruction in the garden do not eat from that tree and God was even so gracious 
as to make clear exactly what would happen if Adam broke that law. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It is just and it is fair for God to cut us down for our sin. God does not owe us long lives. God does not owe us, owe it to us to allow us to remain on this earth for hundreds of years or thousands of years and to enjoy sunrises and sunsets and food and drink and other sensory pleasures. God does not owe it to us to allow us to remain on this earth for centuries and millennia to enjoy relationships and art and music and so on and so forth for God to cut us down and send us not only to the grave but lower than the grave into hell is just it is what we are owed for our sin we have earned death and this is true for all of us some of us are more sinful than others some of us are less sinful than others relatively speaking but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in this past year to pick two examples of people who have passed away We saw R.C. Sproul, great Bible teacher, pass away. We saw Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy magazine, pass away. There is a relative difference between these two men. But R.C. Sproul would be the first to say that by virtue of the life that he lived here on earth if he were to try to stand on his own two feet say Lord I taught the Bible faithfully I tried to obey you the best I could I loved my wife faithfully I didn't have any major sins or scandals to speak about oh Lord let me into heaven R.C. Sproul would be the first to say, God would not accept that. God would cut him down like grass that springs up in the morning and at evening withers. And God would send him to hell because of his sinfulness. Maybe he did not live as depraved a life as Hugh Hefner, relatively speaking. But God's just wrath toward human sin justly falls on each and every person. And so generations spring up and generations pass away. And another generation springs up and another generation passes away. And God's wrath, not only our finiteness, but God's wrath is part of the reason why this cycle of death and destruction continues generation after generation. God cuts us 
down as a human race. God sent Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. The land that He promised, that He swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob to give to their descendants. God sent Moses to bring the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and bring them into that promised land. When they got to that promised land, they sent spies into that land to scope it out, to suss out the situation. And the spies came back and reported, it is a good land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. But there are giants in this land. And the people did not obey God by going in to take possession of that land. They refused to go in. They disobeyed God. And so God punished them by saying, every one of you, except Joshua and Caleb, every one of you will drop dead in the wilderness. That was God's just wrath. That generation sprung up like grass in the morning, and that generation, that generation that left Egypt, was cut down by God's wrath in the wilderness. It's likely toward the end of that generation's demise that Moses wrote this psalm. After seeing scholars estimate on average 15,000 Israelites per year die over the span of their wanderings in the wilderness. Moses was weary of the death, weary of the destruction, weary of the wandering, weary of the wrath. And he prays to God. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Verse 13. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. In other words, after this long night of wrath, bring the morning light. After this long night of wrath, bring grace, bring mercy. Turn, O Lord. Relent, O Lord. Interestingly, the only other place in the Old Testament where we find these two words together. In the ESV, verse 13 says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. We wouldn't pick this up from the English translation. But the same two verbs are used in Exodus 32 and verse 13. When Moses intercedes for the people of Israel in the golden calf incident. You remember Moses goes up onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And the people at the bottom of the mountain forge for themselves a golden calf. And God says in verse 9 to Moses, Exodus 32 and verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And here's the verbs that are repeated in Psalm 90 and verse 13. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That's the way that Moses intercedes for the people of Israel in the golden calf incident. And he comes to God again in Psalm 90 with those two verbs. Oh Lord, turn, turn and relent. Turn and relent. Oh Lord, don't let the people that you have brought out of Egypt perish utterly in the wilderness. Oh Lord, your wrath is just. You cut us down in your just wrath. But oh Lord, have mercy. Have grace. You see, Moses is not pleading that the Lord would have justice upon the people. Justice is already happening. This is why that generation is being cut down. This is why generation after generation of mankind are cut down. Because of sin and because of God's just wrath. Moses prays for mercy. Moses prays for grace. Moses' train of thought in Exodus 32 is explicitly, Lord, what will the nations say? If they see you bring a people out of Egypt and destroy them in the wilderness, what will they say? Oh Lord, they won't see your gracious character. They won't see your mercy. Lord, all they will see is your justice. Oh Lord, be merciful that your, the glory of your grace might be on display. That's Moses' train of thought explicitly in Exodus 32. It seems, both from the fact that it's the same author and the, also from the fact that he uses the exact same words, turn and relent, that probably this same line of thinking is happening in Moses' mind as he pens Psalm 90. Oh Lord, you are dealing with us justly. You are the everlasting creator. We are the finite and sinful creation. And you are justly mowing us down here in the wilderness. But, oh Lord, turn and relent. Oh Lord, show us grace. Oh Lord. After this night of wrath, bring the morning time. And satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad, he says, for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil. In other words, he's saying, don't just give us a little brief reprieve from your just wrath. But turn from it altogether. And show us only and always grace. Oh Lord, show us as much grace. Show us as much mercy as you have shown us 
of just wrath over this last generation. Deal differently with us now, O Lord, I pray. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. And this is the substance of his intercession. O Lord, turn from your just wrath and show us mercy. Show us grace. Instead of opposition to us and futility, give us aid and help. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Instead of the opposite of favor, displeasure or disfavor, whatever we might whatever term we might use, instead of opposing the work of our hands and dooming us to futility, oh Lord, give us aid, give us help. This is what Moses is praying for at this juncture. God answers. He answers implicitly. We don't have a record of God's verbal response to Moses in Psalm 90, but God answers implicitly and God answers in the affirmative. God grants what Moses prays for. Most immediately, we read in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, a description of the generation that came into the promised land. God is speaking about the contrast between Israel in her youth and Israel in the present day, in Jeremiah's day, which was many, many generations later. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. He's obviously not speaking about the generation that refused to go into the promised land in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 2. And so he must be speaking of the generation that came after them, the generation that learned the lesson, the generation that was devoted to the Lord. The generation that Joshua and Caleb led in to the promised land. Indeed, the Lord turned and the Lord relented. And He didn't mow down a second generation in the wilderness. But, in fact, brought that second generation into the promised land. And fed them with milk and honey. He gave them those gigantic grapes of Canaan that the spies brought back with them. He fed the next generation with those grapes. God turned and relented and stopped executing just wrath upon that next generation and instead of that just wrath showed them great mercy and great grace. He did not oppose the work of that next generation's hands the way He opposed the attempts of the first generation to go into the promised land after they had disobeyed and Moses said, you're going to wander and die in the wilderness. They said, okay, okay, now we'll go. And they tried to go up into the promised land and God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies. By contrast, God established 
the work of that second generation's hands and brought them in to the promised land. And so we see an immediate fulfillment of Moses' prayer of intercession in that second generation of Israelites, those whom he brought in to the promised land. But what we see is that even they died, biologically speaking. And even many of those second generation, after experiencing the temporal blessings of life in Canaan, after a delay of God's temporal just wrath, even many of them died and went to hell. That second generation that came into the promised land, not all were saved from the ultimate penalty of their sin. Even though God's hand of temporal wrath was stayed against them, we're not led to believe from Scripture that that whole generation that followed Joshua and Caleb into the promised land trusted in the Messiah and were delivered from the eternal punishment that they deserved for their sin. And so what we see is that there is a fulfillment, an immediate fulfillment of Moses' intercession, but it's a partial fulfillment and a somewhat unsatisfying fulfillment. He says, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. If all God did was stay His temporal wrath against that generation for 30 or 40 or 50 years and then send them to hell, it's hardly a fulfillment ultimately of Moses' petition which is that God would turn away entirely from His just wrath and be gracious and merciful only and always to the people. That God would actually tip the balance, as it were, away from misery and judgment and wrath towards benevolence and goodness and grace and favor. Simply bringing that next generation into the promised land and giving them large grapes and good harvests and good food and homes to dwell in and then sending them to hell is hardly a fulfillment, ultimately, of Moses' petition here. And so what we see is that Psalm 90 waits for fulfillment beyond the second generation that goes into the promised land. It waits for fulfillment. And you see God's temporal wrath reoccur throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament. As the Israelites fall again into sin and God again brings cycles of judgment to them and eventually exiles them into Babylon. But even when He brings them back from Babylon again, this plea that God would turn away from His just wrath and turn toward mercy and grace and favor and benevolence is yet ultimately unfulfilled. But then what we see, then what we see is that a baby is born in Bethlehem. Emmanuel. God with us. Savior. Son of Abraham. Son of David. The Christ. As we saw last week. And it is through this one that Moses' prayer 
of intercession, that God would turn away from His just wrath toward grace and mercy. That God would entirely stop pouring wrath upon people. And that God would start only and always showing benevolence and favor to people. It is through this one, Jesus, that Moses' prayer of intercession finds its ultimate fulfillment. What we see in Christ Jesus is that He takes the punishment, the just wrath that disobedient people deserve in place of disobedient people in order that God may justly stop pouring wrath upon people who deserve it. He suffers as a substitute, vicariously. And He clothes all who trust in Him with His righteousness so that God is just to give rewards due for righteousness to a people who, strictly speaking, don't deserve it. It is through the Christ, it is through Jesus that the Lord brings the dark night of wrath to an end and satisfies His people in the morning with steadfast love. It is through Christ that God causes His people to rejoice and be glad all their days. It is through Christ that God moves His people from under His disfavor to being under His favor. It is in Christ that God moves His people from being doomed to futility to having the work of their hands established. It is through Christ that God brings all of these petitions of Moses in Psalm 90 to fruition. The book of Joel describes the just wrath, the judgment of God upon His Old Testament people. In chapter 1, verse 4, we read, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. What you see is this description of devastation caused by God's just wrath, incurred by the sin of God's Old Testament people. Wave after wave of locusts ravaging the land until there's nothing left. But what you see in the book of Joel is a promise that in future days the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. This is a promise of the new covenant. It's actually only a few verses later that we read uh, what is quoted in Acts 2, where Peter says this is the fulfillment of what is written in the prophet Joel. 
It shall come afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, etc., etc. I mentioned that to secure the conclusion that I just put forward to you. This is a promise of the new covenant. It is in the new covenant. It is in Christ's coming that God fulfills ultimately the petition that Moses brings to him in Psalm 90 to bring to an end the night of his just wrath and to bring in a morning of joy and plenty and abundance and satisfaction that God would turn away from his just wrath and relent of his just wrath and show benevolence and favor to his people. It is in Christ Jesus that the devastation of the locusts is stopped and that the years that the locusts have taken, the crops that they have destroyed are restored to God's people. It's in Christ Jesus, ultimately, that this prayer of Moses is answered in the affirmative. Yes, it's as if God says, yes, I will turn. Yes, I will relent. For the sake of my Messiah, who was crucified in the place of all who deserved to be crucified. For the sake of my Messiah, who was righteous and clothes his people in righteousness. For his sake, yes, I will turn. For his sake, yes, I will relent. For his sake, yes, I will bring the night of my wrath to an end and satisfy you with steadfast love in the morning. For his sake, yes, I will cause you to rejoice and to be glad all your days. Yes, for his sake, I will put my favor upon you. For his sake, yes, I will establish the work of your hands. It's in Christ Jesus that these promises find their yes and amen, as Corinthians tells us, along with all the other promises, along with all the other good things that God does. God does all of these good things ultimately in Christ Jesus, His Son. This is the realistic picture of life as we know it, that Moses paints for us. God is eternal, everlasting. We are not. We are cut down over and over and over by His wrath. But there is some reprieve. There is some hope. In fact, more than just a temporary reprieve, there is an eternal reprieve from that just wrath, from this endless cycle of death and destruction and cutting down. There is an eternal forever reprieve for all who seek it in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. All who come to Jesus in faith find that God is their dwelling place from generation to generation. And as we rise and we fall, God remains our dwelling place. God remains a dwelling place for His people. And as Jesus said, He who believes in Me, even though He dies, yet shall He live. When we turn to Christ on one day here in our earthly lives, what happens is that God turns away from wrath towards us and turns towards us in favor and benevolence, which will even outlast our earthly lives. Into eternity, God will be favorable and benevolent towards us.
for Christ's sake. And so we find that we have a shelter, a reprieve from the cycle of death in Christ Jesus. So, as we approach this new year, might I suggest that we make a few New Year's resolutions. (laughs) The commentator, William Plumer, says in view of this psalm, let us be anxious to live well rather than to live long. Moses prays, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In view of rightly considering God's anger and God's wrath, as verse 11 alludes to, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? He's saying no one, no one gets it properly. Help us get it. Help us get your wrath towards sin properly. Help us to get that. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In view of that idea, Plumer says, let us be anxious to live well rather than to live long. To understand that the purpose of this life is not to merely prolong our days, to just live a little bit longer, to hang on to our youth, to delay our death. These are not good purposes of life. We will be cut down eventually. We are are dust yesterday, a watch in the night, things swept away, dream, grass. Rather, let us seek that God would be our dwelling place. Today and tomorrow and throughout all our days and into eternity, would God be our dwelling place. Let us seek, let us be anxious to live well rather than to live long. Let us seek a dwelling place in God and in His grace. And let us, in doing so, assign the right value to each passing day. Not overestimating it, but seeing it rightly as one passing day amidst an eternity. And what is best for us to do, again, is to seek dwelling place in God and in His grace. And to live well so long as we are here. To not worry about simply prolonging the span of our life, but spending our days well while we are here. John Calvin talked about how mankind is so skilled in mathematics in so many ways. We can measure the distance between the earth and other planets. We can draw maps and talk about miles and kilometers and all of these things. But we're so bad at rightly measuring our own lives. We're prone to overestimate our whole lives. May we be resolved in light of this psalm and all we've considered tonight to not overestimate our days, but to put them in the right perspective. And to, as Plumer said, be anxious to live well rather than to live long. To live in view of God's eternality and our temporality. To live in view of God's wrath and God's grace in Christ. To seek, to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and make God our dwelling place. Throughout our generation, to proclaim that He is a dwelling place 
for His people throughout all generations, to our children, to our grandchildren, to those who come after them. May we be anxious, as Plumer said, to live well rather than to live long, to recognize that God is big, we are small, God endures forever, we don't. Reorient our lives around the realities of God's eternality, His justice, His wrath, and live, and His grace, and live accordingly. Would we live in such a way then that all glory would go to God, that all glory would go to Christ and not to ourselves, to recognize that our lives are, as Moses talked about in his intercession to God in Exodus 32, our lives are merely a display of God and His character. Would we get that in our hearts and in our minds and live accordingly in such a way that we would be content to be displays, exhibits of God's mercy and God's grace as we live the remainder of our lives and then return to dust and go into eternity? Would we be Will we have God's glory and not our own at the forefront of our minds?